0: Welcome to MLR Kickoff, episode 42, with your hosts, Dan Power and Pete Steinberg.
1: Hey, folks, summer is winding down, but MLR, it is heating up, and we have a big show coming your way. We'll go through all the usual stuff, Pete's travel tip coming up. We'll go through the Utah Warriors and review their season and look forward to their 2020 campaign with Kimball Carr, and we'll also take a look at the PNC, how that ended up with that final game, USA and Japan. As always, I'm joined by my co-commentator, Pete Steinberg, and Pete,
0: are you uh, in the United States? Are you in Colorado? I'm in the United States. I am in Colorado. I am in my office. It's, uh, it's, an, it, it's it, it, you know, it's these, it, this is one of these things where I looked to August, then and I was like, oh, August looks like a day I'm not going to travel very much. But, you know, a client calls, so I jump on a plane, and uh, I have my travel tip from my nightmare trip last night back from Chicago. So I think Dan, you and I Let's both had it. wonderful experiences of flying through Chicago, both in the summer and the winter, and it can be a tough airport. It's my least favorite airport in the United States. So I'm doing work in in Chicago. Um, uh, I, I I head to the airport. I, I get there, and um, there's you know the the. I mean, I was on the 55th floor of, a, of my client's building in Chicago and, and didn't really notice what was going on outside, but it, there must have been some storms because there was there was a delay and then they, had, um, they actually reduced the number of flights. So in places like O'Hare, um, there are so many flights that if you reduce the flights, you just create a bunch of um, delays. So here's the trick about how you manage delays. What you don't do is you don't trust what you're told by the airline for your departure time, because what they do is they actually hold changing departure times for as long as they can. They don't want to change them every 15, 20 minutes. So you'll see that your departure time will say, we're leaving at 7.30 and it's 7.45 and you haven't boarded yet. The trick to really know when you're going to leave is to know when your plane that you're going to take is going to land. And you can do that nowadays on all of the apps. I'm, I was flying United. Um, if you go to the flight status of your of the united app you can go down it says where is my plane coming from and i could see that my plane was coming from cleveland and so and it was delayed and so i didn't worry about anything to do with my departure time or anything like that until that flight left cleveland so uh, you know a lot of time people were hanging around the gate And I, you know, I would go to the gate and I would look and I'm like, all these people are hanging, people are standing up to queue. I'm like, your flight hasn't left Haven yet. And so that's the travel tip. The travel tip is when you see delays, check the incoming flight. That's a better indicator about when you're going to leave and give yourself, it's probably like a good, at least like 20, 30 minutes from when that incoming flight gets to the gate, once they deplane and clean the plane before you get on. So look at the incoming flight and that'll tell you when you're going to take off.
1: Very good, Pete. Very good, as always. It's just, just such a treat for me to sit back and listen <laughs> to your wild adventures around the US. And you also had a little surgery too. You got a little taste of I my did. world. I did. Uh, yeah. Give us an update on that. How are you feeling? Yeah. Everything good? Uh, everything, everything
0: is great. I, uh, um, I stood up in front of my client with um, my left handle bandage. Thanks God, it's my left hand. And um, you know, I, I, I said, you know, if you look at my bio, I'm a rugby guy. This isn't a rugby injury. Um, if you look at my bio, you'll say I live in Colorado. This wasn't like a hiking or biking injury. Um, this was a cooking injury. So I managed to have a pretty nasty injury while cooking. I had an argument with the olive oil bottle. I wouldn't say the olive oil bottle won because it doesn't exist anymore, but it was probably a tie. That's what you
1: get. Uh, I buy the cheap stuff in the plastic bottle, so I never have that problem. <laughs> Pete, there's a there's a cooking tip to add right. to a travel That's tip. Right. Let's talk. Let's talk a little Major League Rugby now. We're going through the off season, reviewing our reviewing the sides. We've done Austin. We had Andrew Sunil on for that. Let's talk a little bit of Utah now. Uh, interesting year for Utah. They make the semifinals in the inaugural year. They drop a little. Two wins, two draws in 2019. I think you'd agree. Probably one of the most talented, yet unique rosses in Major League Rugby. And we saw that at times throughout this year, when they were hot, they were extremely hot, but the inconsistencies on the field shone through, and, and they languished at the bottom of the table, finishing eighth overall in 2019. Pete, uh, your thoughts on Utah well, first up, you know, just
0: as a whole. Um, first of all, I'm going to completely blame Utah for you winning the season picks because every time I saw Utah play, I'm like, "This is it, they've turned the corner," and then they they wouldn't have, but. You're absolutely right, Dan, about this team being talented. Let's go down and look at some of their results, right? So um, they they had a tie with the Glendale Raptors, 26-26. That was week three. Um, they lost to Nola Gold 19-21 um, uh, on week four. And then week five, they got blown out by Rugby United New York. Um, week six, they lost by two points to the Houston Sabercats. Um, week seven, they got blown out by the Toronto Arrows. Um, week eight, they were very competitive against the um, SeaWolves. Um, week nine, um, they were beaten relatively easy by N- Nola Gold. Week ten, they lost by. T- it's literally every other game. They were very competitive with 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 a good team, and and you go all the way to the end of the season, and you know they they away to Seattle, they tied twenty seven twenty seven on the penultimate weekend and then lose at home to the Houston Sabercats, who admittedly were on a run. But this team was so frustrating to watch. It was so, it, like, you could see the talent. And, and it was it was a real struggle for, for them to just provide any kind of consistency. Well, let's start with some bright points from the year. And let's
1: talk individual players. Who stood out for the Warriors in 2019? Give me your three, two, one. So uh, one point... Three, two points, three points for
0: your best player, for the Warriors. For so, I mean, I think, team. look, you know, they, they had a number of standout players um, and, and some players that um, did really good stuff. Like you can see, again, Moore, and, and what an impact he has and, and, you know, has the chance of going into Japan with the U.S. But, you know, I'm, I'm going to actually talk about um, what what I think was a, a challenge for them, which was um, uh, their 9-10 axis. Um, I think that they uh, – um, I think Tim O'Malley – I mean, if we remember, Josh Reeves was off at the ARC and Tim O'Malley was playing 10. But when Josh Reeves came back and Tim O'Malley went to 12, you really saw Tim O'Malley and what he can do. And he he is a solid player. And that was a great combination. But there was some – they were struggling to put that combination consistently on the field. Um, so, you know, I think um, – you know, I, and I loved, I loved Josh Reeves. I think he's a great player. I mean, I got to, you know, he's one of those, you know, it's, it's one of those things, Dan, that we were, um, you know, uh, fortunate enough to um, get to meet some of these guys. And, uh, um, you know, he was, he's just a really, really nice guy. Um, Matt, Matt Jensen, who um, was such a strong player, you know, led the league in line-out takes, led the Utah in minutes a really, really, um, a really, really strong player. And, um, you know, it's outside of that. I think they, they have some, um, some players that I think showed a lot of potential. Like I loved, um, Ara Elkington. I thought he was a player that really, um, showed potential, but wasn't consistent. Um, I think that, uh, um, you know, they, they have, um, I think Johnny Eker at nine was a player that grew as the as the season went on. Um, you know, uh, Josh Whippy, just a, a, an amazing player, but wasn't able to be on the field enough. Um, you know, they've got players that I think were good enough, but we just didn't see enough consistency um, from any of those players um, when they went through. And 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 I think a guy that I, I do want to mention because I felt like whenever he wasn't on the field, he was a loss. Was John Cullen um John Cullen retired he retired as the captain of the Utah Warriors um I'm sure it wasn't the season that he wanted to have at the end but he was such a strong contributor for them that when he, whenever he wasn't in the back row um it was felt yeah I agree with a lot of those players uh at oh Lance yeah, Williams yeah, a lot of to that Williams as well I thought I think was, was, got a really was, bright was a really really Strong player. But, you know, so so I think that it's interesting because if you look at their lineup, I think you're right, Dan, they've got a lot of good players. But if you look at the stats, I mean, they conceded the most tries. Um, They had the worst tackle percentage, right? So they had the worst defense in the league. But if you looked at attack, they had more meters carried and the most amount of offload. So you've got to say, right, okay, so this is a team that's going to score a lot of points um, and they're not going to stop people from scoring. Why weren't they able to score enough points in their um, uh, in the in those close games, and and it ended up being the lineout. The lineout was their Achilles' heel. Um, they were, um, I think, one of the bottom three teams um, in lineout percentage. I think that they were, um, you know, one of the bottom teams in defensive lineouts. And it's such an important part of the game that if you have a weak lineout, you miss those easy scoring opportunities. Um, you know, just to be able to kick into the corner. And, and, and drive it in. Yeah.
1: You take out those four games, though, where they really got blown out. Uh, New York put 47. Toronto and Glendale, 64 each. Seattle, 48. Yeah, no, I mean, I mean that's why close. I thought
0: they were like, a competitive like, team, right? They I don't very think that they were, they were that far off. And I think I'll go back to your comment, which was sort of, this is an unusual but extremely talented um, uh, squad. And, um, you know, I think... Uh, and, and we'll hear, hear from the, from um, uh, Kimball um, a little bit later. But, you know, I think that the organization said this squad should have done better. And I think that's why they went ahead and made a coaching change.
1: Let me put my GM hat on for a little bit and I'll tell you what I think they need. You've got a super talented roster. A lot of the players you mentioned, you would assume will be back in 2020. I think they need to go out and get like a Brad Tucker or, or a Ricard Hadding, just a, an older leadership player who can galvanize. I think Paul Ossike assumed that role, even though he was so fresh back to rugby in his first year. But if you can get that more seasoned kind of being around, played at a high level, well, they've got uh, Thompson they coming do. in, the former All Black, who may actually fill that role next year. If they can find that leader that they can kind of lean on because you can see through the results, they were in close games. They just didn't know how to win. They could make a lot of meters. They could get that offload. But how many times did you call the Utah game or I called the Utah game? They would string together three or four great phases, make a big break, and then they would panic. And they'd get into a situation where they'd throw a miracle ball. And instead of just consolidating and recycling possession, a few more phases and just trying to open up the cracks a little bit more. But uh, I I would go out – and, you know, you've obviously got Thompson coming, but I would go out and sign a, a dynamic, probably a forward. I like Reeves. I like O'Malley. I like Semple. Uh, we'll see if those three are back in that capacity next year. But maybe a, a number eight or, or a seven or or maybe even the front row. Go out and well, get I mean, like a Paddy Ryan the, type the, player. You know, they, they need in.
0: to work on their depth <laughs> hooker. I mean, um, uh, Blake Burdett was on the roster for four games. Um, Blake, you know, was a great player. I... I, I Coached him before he went to the 2007 World Cup, um, but you know they were they were struggling um, in in the in as, as a hooker. Um, and I, I agree with you at number eight. I think that they need a real abrasive number eight. And I also you know agree. I think they've got the backs. I think that you know they've got um, some some exciting outside backs that can do the work. I think Johnny Eker can can become a really dynamic um, nine for them. Um, playing behind a pack that's going forward, so I think it's in the pack where they're going to be able to make, um, going to need to make um, some choices. But you know, it's going to be interesting, right? Because you've got, um, you know, a new, a, a new coach, um, a new structure, and it's going to be interesting to see what kind of style of play they want to, um, they want to get after.
1: Well, there's one man that can tell us all that and more. And you had a chance to sit down with Kimball from the Utah Warriors earlier today. So let's shoot over to that now. It's Pete Steinberg with Kimball Care from the Utah Warriors.
0: Well, Kimball, thank you so much for joining us on Major League Rugby Kickoff. Um, Everyone that I've spoken to in Major League Rugby says, um, while the games aren't playing, there's no actual off-season. So I'm sure you're very busy and we appreciate you making the time
2: yeah people seem to think that uh, the off season is is the time that I get to go to the beach and you know have just vacations and you know sip it on uh, mimosas you know on the weekends right but uh, this is uh, you know the busiest time of season for me particularly um, and really this is where you know the, you know I think the phrase is more apropos where you know a June championship it really is built in July so right right well, you know before before we talk about
0: what you're doing in the off season. Um what I would, you know it'd be great to hear a little bit about your thoughts of the um Utah Warriors in their second season um you know from my perspective they were um you know the warriors were a team that was competitive but never seemed to be consistent what were some of the challenges that you think the warriors faced as they went through season 2
2: well you know overall i mean listen 212 and 2 you know there's there's no way to put, you know, too much lipstick on that pig. I mean, let, let's just call that for what it really is. And that's just a disappointment and a season that we never wanted and and never hoped to repeat ever again. Um, you know, here in Utah, we take great pride in our rugby and we take great pride in in the community and and uh you know, the everything having to do with um, you know, who we are as a as a community. So, it's it's a big part of who we are and in our dna and so you know acknowledging that two twelve and 2 wasn't a successful season um we understand that there's some growing pains and some some learning moments that we've got to take on board in order to be able to make sure that uh, that doesn't happen again
0: now you know as you said 2 and 12 was um obviously disappointing but um, you know the Warriors certainly um, had their moments throughout the season. When you reflect, what are some of those moments that you were really proud of the team? Well,
2: listen, I, you know I have to give my you know tip my hat to you know everyone within the organization. You know, despite the, the results that began to kind of pile up, everyone was working hard. You know, including the coaching staff, um, but you know the players in particular really did not give up, and and you know they they realized that it was. Um, you know, it it was a sense of pride uh, for them to to make sure that they continued to fight. I I think you saw that near the end, especially in that last uh, game that we had against Seattle. Um, The guys just really came out. They came out uh, hard and, 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 you know, really put the scare to Seattle. And, you know, inevitably it was another tie um, um, because we couldn't close out the game. But you know, people saw glimpses of what we believed as an organization of what this team could have been last season, and you know, hopefully, will be in the future. So, I, I have to tip my hat to everyone involved, just given the fact that that number of losses is hard to really keep your chin up and to uh, keep getting up off the mat. And our players, in particular, really need to be given some credit on that front because they, uh, they they kept doing it week in and week out.
0: Now, you talked about the the coaching staff, and obviously, um, uh, you know, the Warriors uh, made a decision to move on from Alf Daniels. Alf has a long history with U.S. rugby. I think he's probably very well liked. Can you talk a little bit about kind of how the organization came to that decision and, um, you know, what what you guys plan to do in terms of coaching in the future?
2: You know, it was a hard decision, uh, candidly, because um – you know Alf Daniels, in particular is one of uh, you know the top human beings that you'll ever meet on, on you know the face of this earth. Candidly, he's just a great person, um, a great individual, and someone that we had high hopes for to help us be able to build the organization that we needed to build it from you know the beginning and the outset of uh, of Major League Rugby. Um, but you know after we were doing the reviews with the coaches, um, you know our exit interviews with the players, we just began to realize that there was um, you know, a little bit of a bigger disconnect between, you know, what the players were seeing, what the coaches were seeing, and, and as an organization, we just realized that, uh, you know, if we want to really move this back in the direction that we needed to move the team uh, in terms of, you know, results on the field, uh, you know, we need to make some changes. And it was, uh, you know, honestly one of the harder conversations I've ever had to have. Um, just because I consider Alf a good friend of mine and, uh, someone that I have a lot of esteem and respect for. He's well-respected within his circles back home in New Zealand. And he's a, he, he's a, he's a champion individual, but, um, you know, it was a decision that needed to be made because, you know, at the end of the day, we've got to have an organization that is, uh, putting out the wins and, and, um, you know, we've got to be able to be able to build that culture that, uh, the players can get their heads around in order to do that. So.
0: You know, so, so you've, um, you know, um, Alpha's left the organization, you're in the process of a new coaching search. W- what have you learned in the first two years of Major League Rugby that might inform your next choice of coach that, you know, may have been different without, if you talked a little bit about sort of some sort of reset and there was some disconnect. So, so what do you think you might do differently in this next coach selection?
2: Well, you know, I, I look at some of the, the things that are happening across the the league and, you know, I think you're going to begin to find that each team is going to begin to lay hold on what their identity is as a team, an organization, a community. Um, and, and, and to be honest with you, I think we've learned that over the last couple of years. Um, you know, especially here in Utah, we, we've taken on the lessons that, uh, you know, are really going to set us apart and really, I think are going to make us successful in the long run. And, and one of those is is that, uh, and I think it's different for each team in each community. But you know, I, as I look at the the future landscape of of the league as it continues to grow and progress, um, I think the teams that are going to be the most successful in the long run are going to have a, a strong um, domestic development pathway strategy. Um, and, and that's not just saying that that's academies and, you know, building, you know, youth rugby up and, you know, getting our players amongst um, the high schools and the colleges. It's taking a very deliberate and focused approach to how we look at um, partnering and working with the collegiate landscape, uh, with the men's club landscape, with, you know, the high school, um, you know, development pathways and, and providing uh, not only opportunities, but more importantly, how we look at and assess um, and de- and even develop that talent, so for me it's it, it goes a step further um, with you know I, I look at the players that we have particularly within this team, and maybe this is just a little bit specific to the the Utah team, but um, but I, I think it would be you know an argument that uh, you know every major league team is going to come across this in some way, shape or form, that um, American rugby. Players and athletes that are coming from, you know, by and large, an American, you know, upbringing look at the game a little bit differently. They they have a a different approach and and mindset to the game than you may have from some of these guys that are being brought in from overseas. Um, And it takes a different brand of coach to be able to react to that, to understand that, and really understand what you know pushes the buttons and makes the you know the the clock work, so to speak, uh, for those players um and and I'm not saying that Al for our coaching staff didn't really fully understand that, but what I am saying is that moving forward, for us as we look at our um, something that I believe is going to differentiate us from some of the other teams in in the league is that we're going to be looking at our 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 coaching staff, the support staff, uh, the director of rugby, others uh, that are in, you know, in the line of work of helping our team be successful they have to have a, a good fundamental understanding of the american you know domestic rugby landscape they've got to understand really what the challenges are for these kids to grow up playing rugby and how we can develop them how we can speak to them on the opportunities and you know bring them along through our ecosystem you know specifically but then also to be able to connect with and resonate with the current players uh, on really what makes them tick Uh, because it is different. I mean, let's be honest, major league rugby, we're not to the level where everybody's fully professional just yet. So you've got a kind of a unique hybrid situation where these players are kind of in a, you know, some of them are just coming from day jobs still. Some of them still have families and you got to be able to balance some of those expectations and how we push and, and, Get the best out of these players, and, and it takes a unique brand of of um, you know man management to be able to do that from the coaching perspective. So, those will be some of the things that that you know undergird what we're trying to do strategically in this next you know hiring cycle of of who we're going to bring on.
0: I mean, that sounds like there's there's probably not a very large pool of coaches that have sort of you know the professional background that you want them to have. To be able to set high standards, um, but also the experience with the American athlete and 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 the understanding about how they tick. What what? Where are you in your coaching process? Do you have sort of a timeline that 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 you're looking at? And have you thought about you know what the coaching staff should look like? Is this because I you know we've heard things about some more reorganization of of the Warriors where there's some different roles being created. So, you know, how do you know, you talked about a director of rugby separate from the coach, but you know, how do you see assistant coaches and those sorts of things um, working all together?
2: Yeah. Well, right now we have uh, some, some final candidates that are uh, that have been recommended to the, to the board and we're just waiting on final approval on the head coach and the director of rugby. Um, and we'll be making some announcements here very soon. And then um, outside of that, uh, we'll be looking to let the head coach build his, um, his support, you know, his assistant coaching staff. But, um, you know, the communications that we've had internally uh, will we'll be to bring on, you know, a good attack coach, someone that, um, you know, similar to that same kind of, you know, mantra of, of working with the domestic landscape and understanding what it is we're trying to do, but at the same time have the technical wherewithal to really push us where we need to be, um, you know, bring in a good attack coach. Uh, and then, you know, within that, uh, you know, the second, the other co- the assistant coach would be, you know, someone within, um, you know, forwards and set piece and, um, you know, someone that, you know, layered into that is, you know, some defensive uh, capability. So obviously, you know, you're going to have, these coaches wearing multiple hats in terms of some of their responsibilities and what it is that they're trying to do. But, um, you know, you're, you're looking at a, a good solid coaching staff of, you know, some good technical uh, wherewithal, um, but, you know, more importantly, some good man management skills in terms of what it is that we're trying to do. The director of rugby is, you know, the, the position that I think is going to be a little bit more unique than, you um, you know, some of the other teams in, in terms of their general managers and you know, some of these other folks that are uh, with uh, the other organizations, this individual is going to be uh, not only managing you know, the off-the-field uh, rugby aspects of the team, but he's going to be the interface um, for our recruiting, for uh, talent identification, not only here locally and domestically, but even internationally. Um, he'll kind of be the point person for really building up uh, the United Pathway um Of our academy um, and, and some of these other elements that we're going to look to expand and grow in the next year or so.
0: Um, and, and does that mean that in in the you know in it, the until the director of rugby and head coach comes on, there's not going to be a lot of announcements in terms of new signings and re-signing? Is that sort of one of those things where you're going to let um those two build build the pool that? Is going to meet what the way they want to play? Uh,
2: yes and no. Um, you, you know, it's kind of a hard balance to to you know to work through this because you know there's certain players that we need to resign and you know just given some some deadlines and time sensitivities that the league um, has on your rosters and um, you know the player allocation drafts and you know, this expansion draft that happened recently in July. You know, we had to kind of go through some of those um you know early conversations. So, you know, we we've re-upped and recontracted a number of players already. Uh we've got some other players that we've signed already. Uh but there will be some you know some key positions that will probably be left uh to the new coaching staff and and the director of rugby to help us you know pull in the resources. Um but you know moving forward, yeah that would be you know on on their shoulders to really build that identity. But uh just given Kind of the off-season planning and the time sensitivities that we've been under you know i've had to kind of take that on my shoulders over the last couple of months and uh you know push us in the direction that i think we needed to be pushed
0: you know i, I want to finish up with um you know a discussion about sort of the infrastructure that um the warriors have in in salt lake city you you probably have the most picturesque um uh stadium uh, it's a it's a great size. Um, it, it creates a, a great atmosphere. Talk a little bit, if you will, about sort of, um, you know, the facilities that you have, uh, how you sort of leverage those facilities. You've talked about some of the challenges of having basically full time and, and part time players. And then, um, you know, what are some of the goals about um, reaching out into the rugby hotbed of, of Utah and, and Salt Lake City to continue to grow the Warriors brand?
2: Well, you know, listen, the, the facilities that we have, I think, are, are second to none. I mean, obviously that's biased and, and you know, take it for what it's worth. But, um, you know, we've got a great partner in, um, you know, Major League Soccer's uh, Real Salt Lake. Uh, we have a facility that we train in that is the largest free-span indoor facility in the world um, during the wintertime. So we're able to do, you know, we're able to really get at it from December uh, until you know, we head outdoors in late April, you know, kind of early May. So um, we got great support uh, from from th- that, you know, Real Salt Lake organization to be able to utilize uh, their video analysis room, the the team training room, storage. Um, you know, we're, we're looking to kind of expand some things in, in, in this next season with them, and, and we're sincerely grateful for the support that they give us. But, you know, the game day experience – you know, it's a 5,000-seat stadium, and you know it's typically two-thirds full every single game, and uh, we hope to continue to increase that. You know, as the team hopefully gets back into a you know winning posture next season. So, uh, it, it's it's a great environment. It's a great community. Um, you know, Utah. You know, people are well aware. You know, the history that we have here with rugby, with the high school landscape, the collegiate landscape. You know, in our in our great Polynesian community, that's the second largest of of any Polynesian community outside of Polynesia. Um, so it's it's massive to our identity as as a as a state and, and as a community. And you know, we just want to make sure that the warriors, um, you know, play our part in in, in representing that community, um, not only the Polynesian community, but our greater rugby community, and even our our, our state. And in terms of how we identify ourselves and just being a hardworking, you know, blue collar group that uh, just really wants to be successful in everything we do. So.
0: Well, Kimball, thanks for taking your time. One of the things I've taken away from this is, is you're currently wearing three hats of um, general manager, director of rugby and head coach. And that's why there is no beach for you in the off season. Um, Good luck moving forward in um, building your structure in the off-season, and we look forward to seeing a more competitive Warriors team um, out on the pitch next year. Thank you.
2: Appreciate it.
1: There you go. Head of the Utah Warriors, a man with plenty on his plate as he tries to build the franchise for 2020. Pete, a couple of really interesting points throughout that I want you to elaborate on. Um,
0: well, I think they're doing on one the of the things that, that, that franchise is heading. you see a lot of teams across the league doing, which is, you know, creating a um, full-time director of rugby and and then also having a head coach. And so for people that aren't quite sure kind of what what that that looks like, the director of rugby really oversees sort of the technical leadership um, and in in, in particular the uh, um, player recruitment. So in American terms, you might call them the GM. Um, And, you know, they're really the person that's out there um, sourcing players, scouting players. um, But they'll also be there overseeing the head coach and and providing feedback to them. And, um, you know, um, often being a conduit between um, the coach and the player. So separating those those two roles are, are important. And then also this the, the concept of creating a more rounded coaching staff. I mean, one of the the struggles that many of the teams have, have had is that, you know, they haven't been able to, you know, probably within their budgets really cre- create quality coaching staffs. Often they'll have a full-time head coach, but the assistant coaches will be part-time and local. And I think that when you, um, when you do that, you – you um, minimize the development that your team can have. And, and I think that you'll see some teams that started really well and struggled as the season went on. You know, as as someone who's, who's, you know, coached in the elite environment, there's no way that one person can review the attack, review the defense, review the lineouts, review the scrums, review the contact area, and really come up with a plan for the week in 24 hours, which is pretty much what you have to do. And so that's why you need those those separate coaching roles so you have your forwards coach they'll be looking at the line out and scrums and they'll come to the head coach and say this is what I think we should do this week and this is the amount of time I need and you'll have the attack coach or the defense coach come and say all right here's what I think we need to do and this is the time that I need and then it allows those coaches to work individually with those players I mean the amount of meeting time that happens I mean you know this Dan having been a player in the professional environment everyone thinks Professional environment means like nine to five training. You, I bet that in most professional environments, they train less on a rugby pitch during the week than the average club team that probably trains four hours a week, right? Four hours a week for a professional start, um, for a professional setup will be less. So, so much of the development happens off the field and one person there just isn't enough.
1: No, you're right, and it will be very interesting. I think a strong Utah is strong for the league. They're very well supported, and that fan base, I'm sure, are thirsty for success in 2020. That uh, head coach decision is going to be an interesting one. It is. I mean, it sounds like it's it's pretty imminent.
0: And there's, you know, we already had some some other um, head coaching uh, positions filled. um, You know, with Paul Healy stepping in at Houston, and you know, there's still still some up. Um, up in the air, and I think you know one of the things that, as as I talk to people in the league, um, both in the league office actually and within the teams, is that for and and you know Kimball talked about this. Right now is probably his busiest time of the year, right? So it, it's funny you think, oh, it's the off season. It's not the off season for the non-field staff, right? So the the people that work off off the field, and so there's a lot of work being done by a lot of teams in terms of identify staffing, bringing coaches on board you know, working on marketing plans, now's the time that you do that. And, um, you know, it's a it's a very busy time for a lot of the teams. Yeah. It
1: is, it is. But exciting nonetheless to get these updates throughout the offseason as all the teams are busily signing players out there. <laughs> Talking of Major League Rugby players, with PNC wrapped up over the weekend, Pete, 30 MLR players involved between the USA and Canada, and uh, it was the big one on the weekend. Obviously, USA versus Japan was for the PNC Championship. We know
0: now Japan too good first, on the day. That I think, first forty minutes, right. actually, really, yeah, I would say it was like really like the first dominant forty like minutes, thirteen they minutes they or fifteen minutes. They were seventeen nothing up um, in, in in that, and it was an interesting yeah. selection by 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 Gary Gold. I mean, we, we haven't seen him rotate these teams um his his eagle team like this, as he did in the three games at the p n c but he came out and said, I want to give everyone a run and that and that and that's what he did
1: well, he has and now well, he has a few warm up games left before the World cup, but you would think that squad is going to get cut down. We saw Eddie Jones name his England squad uh i think yesterday or the day before pretty recently. So you would think, uh, with that last game against Canada, I believe as a warm-up, there was rumours that we would be playing the Wallabies, but uh, that seems to have fallen by the wayside, um, which is probably good. How good were they on the weekend? Just a little tip of the cap to the old motherland there, getting it done against New Zealand. Do you want to know the sure. tough thing about that, though, Pete? Just to derail our conversation a little bit, right?
0: And 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 they might actually have fifteen is have to players play them again this week on on the pitch for the whole game, although. You know, you know. Let, let's let's derail this a little bit because I think this is going to be Ooh, come on. Now. It's it's, it's going to be um, important for season three of Major League Rugby, and it's going to be important for the World Cup, which is um, these new directives that are coming out from World Rugby about um, protecting the head. And um, in in the All Blacks game, there is absolutely no doubt that that was a red card. It was a shoulder to the head with no wrap and no intent to wrap. I do not understand how people could see it any other way. Um, what do you say? It was a closed shoulder. It was a closed shoulder. Right, right. I mean, it, it was, was like, I know, don't understand how everyone's saying blank that, card. that that should have, like, it's just, it, it was, and, and, and actually, I think um, uh, uh, our, our producer, Aaron Castro, was there to see this historic occasion. Aaron, can you just maybe tell us a little bit about um, what it was like after the game? Uh, I mean, well, I it was, I mean, the Aussies were happy, like they were, they were, you know, apprehensive the whole way because, you know, uh, the all black, I say it all the time, the all blacks are the best team in the world with 14 players on the pitch. So, uh, there, there was never a, a chance of, you know, this is in the bag. There was a lot, it was, you know, they were, they were anxious the entire way. And then, you know, they left and they were singing and drinking and being merry and right. then they knew that, well, you know, they you know to I, think, to I think that we can, you know, we'll, we'll derail it enough. We'll, we'll give Dan a little bit of, of, of the glory. Um, um, Dan has, has Australia won the Bledisloe cup in your, in your lifetime?
1: Oh, <laughs> three, I believe was the last time. And, uh, yeah, I was born there. You got You got to You got to remember what you're dealing with. So, it's it's like the, the Chicago Bulls sides of the 90s. That's the All Blacks. And Australia are like the New York Knicks. We, we're okay, but we play against the Chicago Bulls all the time. And I heard a great story this week. It's like, why does Australia have a difficult time winning at Eden Park where they're playing this weekend? And the answer was because they have to play against the All Blacks there. You know, if they play it against someone else, they'd probably win more games there. Eden Park's a beautiful spot to play rugby. It's well, just the you opposition know, so, so that we there right? is New Zealand. Because we're beginning so, to create
0: uh, a little bit of a streak against Canada, right? And we're beginning to pull away. I mean, if we, think, if we get it back to the PNC, I think the last time we were together, we were talking, we made some predictions about the USA-Canada game. We hadn't seen the squads. It looked like Canada came out pretty strong in that game when the US was doing their rotation, and the US dominated that game. I mean they played some they played some some great stuff. It was the best it was mm. the best rugby they played at the PNC. I mean, they really shouldn't have beaten Samoa um in, in, in their second game. That was 13-10. There was a um a miscommunication between Nigel Owens, the referee and the touch judge about whether something was a knock-on that was going to be a Samoan try. And it was I mean it was not a good game of rugby. Um and, and, and against Japan with that rotation, and, and it's interesting to see some of the major league rugby players. You know, we had um, Kamasez and uh, um, Al Jabori in the back row. And I actually thought Al Jabori did pretty well. But, um, you know, Hanko doesn't look, I mean, you know, he was injured at the end of the season. I think that he's. it looks like he's bulked up, which is often it's been the big knock against him that maybe he's a little bit, um, a little bit too small for the, you know, for the international game. Um, you know, he's a very powerful player, but everyone's powerful when you make that step up. And he looked like he might be, um, uh, maybe a step step slow. Um so there was um that was uh, um, an interesting challenge in that game. Um Paul Mullen at tight head um I thought uh um really struggled uh in 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 that game um and, and it was a real challenge for the US to be able to compete. Uh but you know it, it, you know the, on the upside I thought Will Will McGee stepped in early for AJ McGinty and I thought he looked really, really solid and, and, and did well. And it was great to see you know, threaten Palamo back on the field, um, coming in, and uh, um, you know, threaten Palamo and Paul Asique, That might be the beefiest center pairing that the US has ever had. It it, it, it really is. It really is. So, pairing, so you it? know, I don't think that um, you know. And then lots of other you know. I thought when Dylan Fawcett came in at Hooker, he really um, you know did some solid work. Um, Nate Brakely from Rooney, you know, those are two Rooney players that I thought. Um, thought did well. I think that um for Anna Schultz is going to be a really like that's the flyer for me. Um he, he actually did pretty well behind a, a difficult pack and it's going to be interesting to see he's a little bit more um abrasive than Cam Dolan. And so, you know, he might be he he might be a good a good compliment. But the the challenge with all these selections is honestly we've got no idea what Gary Gold is thinking. And so we don't know which of these um major league rugby players are going to make it.
1: Yeah, of course. With the Nick Savetta injury as well, he's racing to get back for the World Cup, but that just opens up another lock position as well. Uh, I know. Yeah, first I mean, to pay not, eight, uh, we, but we can't have like I don't think, I think that Nate Brakley would
0: go well um, before they thought about that. I mean, I think I think you can have a cover. you know. So one of the interesting things, you know, so people when they think about these squads and you think about it as a coach and uh, you know, Ed, um, Eddie Jones of England talks about. Um, He'll, uh, uh, you know, he picks his first 15 and then he picks 28 through 31 because the 28 through 31, like probably aren't going to play. So who they are is really important, but there are some really interesting things. So England only selected two scrum halves, and, and the challenge with that is that what happens if one of your scrum hubs does something, like gets a concussion, isn't able to play the next game, but you don't want to replace him because if you fly someone in, that scrum half is out. And that's why most teams will carry three scrum halves and three hookers. And that third hooker and third scrum half, or at least people that can fill that role, won't you know, won't step on the field unless there's an injury. And, and so only taking two scrum halves is a real challenge. That's why someone like Nate Osberger is really valuable because you can take him and he can play, he can cover scrum half and he can cover wing. And you need that, like your 28, 20, 29, 30, 31. Those are players that you need to, they need to be able to play multiple positions. So, you know, it's going to be really interesting to see how how, um, Gary Gold goes after the 31. And then my, you know, my expectation is that we're only going to see his starting lineup probably through the World Cup. I don't think there's going to be a lot of rotation through the World Cup. It is a short turnaround at the end when we play Tonga, but you just rest, right? You just don't train very much. Um, and, you know, we, I don't think Gary Gold's going to rotate very much once once we get there.
1: No, and Tonga, obviously, talking Canada now, they finished their PNC against Tonga, 23-33. Tonga got away with that one. But uh, an improved performance after, obviously, we talked about that loss to the USA, 47-19. They went down to Fiji, 38-13 in, uh, in Suva, and then a better performance against Tonga. For Canada going into the World Cup, Out of the PNC, they have that one game left against the USA, Yeah, I mean,
0: uh, look, you you know, Canada um, got into the World Cup through the rapprochage, and they look like a team that got into the World Cup through the rapprochage in the PNC. You know, I just – I think that um, they have some very, very good players, uh, but I think that, um, you know, some of their older players, you know, whether it's a Hubert Bidens or a Phil Mack, you know, if they had a really strong – Pipeline. I don't think those would be the guys that 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 you would be looking at. And so you know, I think that's that that's one of the you know one of the challenges. It was great to see Jeff Hassler, you know, back out playing for Canada. He is a um uh, you know a real solid player. I think there are some you know Mike Shepherds and um uh, Kyle Bailey, um Rob Brow. Some of these guys are, are like are absolutely um going to the World Cup. But I'm, I'm just not sure that Kingsley Jones has the um, has the horses to to um, to really be able to compete. Even though their their pool, I think, is a little bit easier um, than than the US pool. So uh, you know, I think that um, you know Canada's is it, they, they they really look like that. You know, they they they're struggling in a lot of different aspects of the game um you know they're struggling really to get go forward to get on that front foot when they play they you know they tend to end up being quite static um on attack and 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 that's a challenge um and you know they're really going to have to lead with their defense and, and bring that traditional physical defense to be effective in japan
1: yep have to agree with that big fella i think you're right but uh, we are very close to the World Cup. We'll, we'll probably dig into that uh, on a show much closer to the World Cup kicking off next month over there in Japan. But uh, exciting. Once every four years, we all come together and get to watch some of the best rugby that, uh, that, that takes place. And I'm looking forward to it. Let's get it on record. Who's your tip to win the World Cup right
0: it's, now? Man, I, I actually think this is probably the most wide open, I know, no, 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 no! I, I think. Jeez, you have to I, think about I, that. It's a quieter I, I, you've I think ever seen, it's the most wide question.
1: open. That's like a five-second world, pause.
0: World um, my, my, sentimental choice would be Ireland. Um, I, I just, I, I, have a sense they've peaked a little early. I feel like you know Ireland last year were the best team in the world. I just don't know that they can recreate that. But Ireland have done everything right, and for um, you know Ireland to win the World Cup, for it to not be a previous winner. Right, um, and for it to be from a country that is not rich or big, but is doing things right, I, I, you know, I think, I think Ireland, and I think if Johnny Sexton um, stays healthy, I, I think that, I think, you know, they've definitely got the team to win, to win, and Schmidt's a smart coach who's always ahead of the game. Um, so, so my my pick is Ireland, but it's a little bit more with my heart than with the head. What about you, Dan?
1: Yeah, there's that emotional factor. They know that uh, Schmidt's. Finished after the World Cup as two. He's uh, very well liked amongst that playing group in Ireland. So that could be another emotional trigger to get them up in a big game. Well, obviously, the All Blacks are always up there and everyone likes to think they're the favourite. But I got – and I, you know what? I hate to say it, but I got a funny feeling leading into this uh, World I Cup. Mean, I mean, they're good. Like, South I, Africa I, I, I got to meet just um, pull something uh,
0: Rassi Erasmus when he was just starting this journey. And he did the uh, um, whale South Africa test in DC and got a chance to sit down with him because I was commentating on that game. And like, I, I walked away from that being like, that guy is kind, like he he sat around for probably 90 minutes talking to local coaches. Like, and was like, ask anything. And answered and was considerate and, and you know, engaged. and And, you know, and then I got a chance to chat with him. And I was just like, he he's a guy that demonstrated his like empathy, which is you know, people people miss that. You know, one of the things that we heard in the Utah interview with Kimball is that, you know, that there was a bit of a disconnect between the coaches and um and, and the players. And and you can't have that in rugby, right? And and so having a leader that that that, that is able to engage with, with the players, um, you know, we heard that from Houston when they made their change. Um, you know, that it was all about, you know, recreating that connection. That's a guy that can create that connection. Um, it's, it's, it's a guy that has time for others. It's not about him. And, you know, he demonstrates how, how deeply he thinks about the game. He's one of those South African coaches that's gone to the Northern Hemisphere, picked up some things, and he's coming back. And, and you know, their ability to to select some of these guys that are tearing up in Europe is, is, is really key for them. Um, you know declare the scrum half is just absolutely phenomenal, but they've got a couple of others. it's like it's 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 nuts. so I, 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 I think this, if I was smart, the smart money would be on New Zealand. Um, but if I wanted to make money on my bet, I would make it on South Africa.
1: Yeah, I just you know they're just leading to this World Cup very similar to 07 where there's a little bit of there's a little bit of turmoil coming out of South African rugby about 12 to 16 months ago that seems to have settled now. And they're just playing that very strong, physical at the line style of South African rugby that they've always found success with. They're going back to that, you know, golden era of, of South African rugby that they saw so much success with because they just were so much more physical than everyone else. And in those tough stages from the quarters, semis, and the final in the World Cup, that's what you need to win. So, could be interesting. We'll we'll, we'll jump into the World Cup later. And uh, you also mentioned Houston, Pete. I'm glad you did because on the next show we'll be reviewing the Sabercats. So for Sabercat fans, make sure you tune into that one as we'll talk to someone within the Houston Sabercats organization. Yeah, and, get, and uh, uh, you know, we'll hear more from, Kim um, hopefully,
0: from uh, Paul Healy. They're, they're well-traveled. I mean, it's another Australian coach, Dan. I mean, it's seriously, it's, 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 it's becoming annoying. Um but, yeah, I mean, you know a very experienced coach that they've brought in, and uh, um you know, I think it's going to be uh Houston and again another talented team, so it'll be interesting to hear kind of how they're getting after it. They've also had some some um you know uh, senior leadership changes in that organization, and so le- learning more from them next time would be great and uh you know everyone that, that that's listening to mlR kickoff, please leave us a review um you know at iTunes or um, Stitcher or, or whatever, wherever you get your um, podcast, those reviews help other people find Major League Rugby kickoff. And it's the off-season, but it's not off. So I'm sure there's more news coming down as we as we head towards Japan and the World Cup.
1: Yeah, hit us up on the socials, hey, Pete Zuckerberg. Find us on the socials and uh, ask some questions and we'll get them on the show for you. Well, Pete, thanks again for joining us, brother. Always a pleasure, never a chore. Aaron Castro, our producer, Pete Steinberg, I'm Dan Power. We will see you next time on MLR Kickoff.